1 Chronicles chapter 1 is where we're going to be. I'm waiting for you to stop reading these names. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I love you guys too much then to read the names. But the names are meant to be read, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So why don't we pray? Oh, Father, thank you so much that we know that your word is truth. Father, we know that because our Lord Jesus said that. He prayed that, that we would be set apart by your word, and your word is truth. And Lord, we believe that with the Apostle Paul that all scripture is profitable. It's helpful for us. And so even when we look at these names that seem to have no resonance with us, we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand why the author put these down and what your intention is for the first audience and for us. Father, we pray that you would bless our time together in your word. We pray that our hearts would be meek and ready to receive your word that is able to save our souls. We thank you that you can and will change us as we humble ourselves and say, Lord, here we are. And so do what you want to do, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you have the little A5 sheet of paper, you'll see that we're, we're talking about uh, today in the first nine chapters of Chronicles is remembering your history. And we do get to these sections in Scripture, these, these genealogies, and they can be quite off-putting because for us, we just see names, names that we can't pronounce, names that I'm not even willing to pronounce. <laughs> and we think, well, what's the point of this? What could this possibly have to do with me? And it's easy to, for us for, to, to forget that we are part of a group of people, God's people, that goes back for thousands of years. And so that when we look at this genealogy, this is in a very real sense our history. Maybe not biologically, unless you're Jewish, but spiritually, this is part of our history. And it's important for us to remember our history, not just because, as the old adage says, those who, that forget history are doomed to repeat it. Not just for that, but for the fact that when we look at the history of God's people, we see it as a testimony of God's faithfulness. How God has done what he's promised for his people. That God's followed through with all his promises to his people. And one and two chronicles, and those books go together. In the Hebrew Bible, those books are one book. Probably because they were so long, they were two different scrolls. So they got identified as one chronicles and two chronicles. But the truth is they're one book in the Hebrew Bible. And in that one book, it's, it's written to the same group of people that, if you remember, if you were here when we did Nehemiah, the same group of people that were receiving Nehemiah, or at least the same, uh, one of the same generations. That, that, that there were people who had formerly been captives in Babylon, had gone back to Jerusalem, and were seeing re Jerusalem rebuilt. And just as we saw in the book of Nehemiah, this is a group of people that are kind of thinking to themselves, this isn't that great. Many of these people probably grew up in Babylon, so they'd heard the stories of God's glory and what God had done for his people Israel, and they get back to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is a shambles. And they're thinking, what's the point? And they need some serious encouragement. 
And so what the, the writer of 1 and 2 Chronicles does, and, and to be, just to be straight up, we don't know for sure who the writer is. An old tradition says Ezra. That's probably not accurate. We don't know for sure. But we do know that the writer of 1 and 2 Chronicles was familiar with the rest of Scripture. And the reason we know that is that Chronicles is put in the Hebrew Bible. Chronicles is the last book. It's there as a summation of all that's happened before it. Specifically, the author would have known that his audience would have known the stories from 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. And that's important for us to remember because a lot of those stories are repeated, sometimes even verbatim, word for word, they're repeated. And so we think, what's the point? Why are we going through this again if you've read that recently? But there's a reason there. There's a reason that, that, that the, the author is writing these things. In fact, it's important for us to know one of the differences between Chronicles and, say, like Kings and Samuel is, Kings and Samuel are history. They're, they're basically writing down, this is what happened. The good bits and the bad bits. What we're going to notice in Chronicles, there's not so much bad bits. Not at least until we get to two Chronicles. <laughs> and there's a lot of just the good bits. And one of the reasons is, is that the, the author is not so much saying, here's history, but he's saying, I want to preach to you some sermons from history. So a lot of what I'm going to do is basically just preach to you his sermons. Makes my job easy. <laughs> to say, this is what the author wanted us to see. This is what he wanted his audience to understand. Now, I, I'll be honest, I was tempted to go through the genealogies much slower. Maybe a chapter or two at a time. Because there's some amazingly interesting stuff. But to be honest, I would probably bore you to do that. And it's a bit technical, so in trying to explain it to you like this, you might get lost. Not because you're not clever enough, but because I'm not good enough at explaining it. So, so I want to encourage you to get some good uh, study helps. To go back and read these things a bit more in depth. If you want some recommendations afterwards, I'll give you some recommendations. But what we're going to do today is we're going to just really do a very fast overview of these nine chapters. In fact, we're really going to just look at a handful of verses in these nine chapters. And the reason we're doing that is because what we, we want to see is in seeing these chapters, and seeing the fact that the author put these genealogies in the beginning, it tells us something about what his point is in these great letters, in these great books, one and two chronicles. So we're going to get into it. So looking, thinking about the first three chapters, the first of four points I want you guys to notice, and this is really about the theme, some of the themes of 1 and 2 Chronicles, is that, 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 is that God's plan centers on a good king. So you notice in verse 1, what's the first word of verse 1, 1 Chronicles 1? You can say this, you can pronounce this name. What's the first word? Adam. Now obviously not Adam Maggio, our faithful trustee. But Adam, as in Adam and Eve, the first man. His name means man. And so what, what happens here is that the author traces the whole genealogy of those who are, who are currently in Jerusalem. He traces them all the way back to Adam. And he wants the readers to understand, you have a history. That the work that God began in creation is a work that's continuing. That you have a history that's important to you. And he, as he gets through the first, say, 20, uh, 28 verses, he goes basically from Adam to Abram. So pick it up at verse 27. Here's what he says. In verse 27, he, he, he traces back. You can see the same genealogy in the book of Genesis. He says, and Abram, who is Abraham, and then he says the sons of Abraham were Isaac and Ishmael. So one of the, the places that we want to stop is at Abraham because 
unlike us, each of these families would have had some stories connected to the original audience. But I want to focus on some of the stories that would be more familiar to us and more important to us for gospel purposes. So when we talk about that God's plan centers on a good king, we have to remember what the covenant was that God made with Abram. Uh, listen to this. And oh, actually, before we get to that, uh, let, me, let me just say, well, yeah, forget it. I'm not going to skip skip Romans 15. Go to, go to Genesis chapter 12. Listen to this. It should be on the screen. This is the God's covenant to Abram. He says, I will make you a great nation. He's saying this to Abram and Sarai, his wife, who are barren. They have any children and they're, they're older people. He says, I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Not just that you're going to gain, but you're going to be able to give. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And notice he says, and you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the promise that God makes to Abraham, is, or Abram at this point, is a promise that he's going to, God's going to do something supernatural in his life. It's not going to just be a blessing to him, but make him a blessing to everyone on the planet, to all the human race. And this is important for us to recognize because there's lessons in here for us as Gentiles, as non-Jews. There's lessons in here for us that, that flow from this Abrahamic covenant. That what God wants to do is he wants to bless us. He's going to tell us what blessing is. We don't get to choose our own blessing. He's going to tell us what that blessing is. But he wants to bless us. He wants to do what's best for us, what's good for us. And that promise is connected to this promise that God made to Abram. But if you go down to verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, we then get into this uh, idea of the genealogy of Israel. So if you remember uh, chapter 1, verse 28, Abraham had uh, uh, Isaac and Ishmael. We skip down from their generations. We get to Israel, whose name would have been Jacob, as in Jacob and Esau, sons of Isaac. And we get to Israel. It says in verse 1, now these were the sons of Israel. And he tells you who his sons are, starting with the firstborn. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Now what we'd expect to see, what we see in the genealogies, is, okay, here's the father, here's the sons, in order. And then from those sons, here's the sons of those sons, in order. But he doesn't do that. Verse 3 says, And the sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, and Shelah. In other words, he says, okay, we're going to skip over to Judah. It's like he's saying, okay, yeah, Reuben is the firstborn, but Judah is much more important for what we're trying to communicate to you. Is that the author of Chronicles wants us to know that the line of Judah is more important. Why? Well, if you skip down to verse 13 of chapter 2 of 1 Chronicles... We get to maybe some, some names that are a bit more familiar. Jesse, who begot Eliab, his firstborn, Abinadab, his second, Shimea, the third, uh, Nathaniel, the fourth, Radii, the fifth, Ozem, the sixth, and notice, and David, the seventh. This is David, you know, the guy who killed Goliath, David who became king of Israel. This is the David he's talking about. Now, this is really interesting because, for one, we know from 1 Samuel chapter Seven, we know that uh, David was not the seventh born. He was the eighth born. And yet here in 1 Chronicles, the author says, no, he's the seventh. Now, there could be a couple reasons for that. One reason could be that actually one of the sons passed away. 
And so therefore he ends up being the seventh. But probably a more important spiritual reason is, what's seven in, in scripture? It's the number of completion or perfection. It's, he's the one you're waiting for, is what the authors wanted us to see. That David is the one that we're waiting for. Now this is important because what we're going to see in 1 and 2 Chronicles, or in 1 Chronicles primarily is when David's talked about, is that David is held up as the example. His reign is held up as exemplary. It's the standard for everyone else's reign. For everyone else's walk with God, David is held up. Now if you've read 1 and 2 Samuel or 1 and 2 Kings, what do we know about David? He was a sinner just like us. But you know, if you're, a, if you're a Jesus follower, you know that Jesus is the son of David, the descendant of David. He's the chosen Messiah. Now, in fact, it's really important that we recognize that what's happening here is that the author is not trying to ignore bad history. He's trying to point out God's sovereignty and point out the good hope that God has given in his promise to David. Listen to this. 1 Chronicles chapter 17, we'll get into this in detail, obviously, in a few months' time. But here's what the promise that God makes to David. He says, your son, that's going to be Solomon, we'll see. Your son shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne for how long? Forever. Forever. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will, take, I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. That would be Saul. And I will establish him in my house and my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. In other words, the, 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 the pinnacle, one of the pinnacles that is in this letter, uh, in this chronicle, is the fact that David is king. And David's the, the, the chosen king, the king that, that God makes the promise to. There's an eternal promise connected to David. Now we're calling the whole series of this book, The Throne and the Temple. This is what we're, we're talking about, these two books. This is the, the, the name for the series, The Throne and the Temple. And the first, this brings in the first bit, the throne. Because when we talk about the throne, obviously we're talking about David's throne, but also how that throne was passed down to, uh, to, to Som, Solomon and his descendants and so on and so forth. But also how that throne represents this eternal promise that God will make sure that he sends a king, a good king. Now for us as, as 21st century Westerners, the idea of a king is, in, is at, at best it's novel. We think, well, it's nice to have a king or a queen. It's kind of nice. You know, as Americans, we moved here to England, and we think, oh, it's nice. There's a king and queen. Isn't that quaint? <laughs> because we think of ourselves as individuals. We live in a democracy. My vote counts and all that. This is how we view ourselves. That's not the way the rest of the world views themselves. They see themselves corporately as part of a group. And your king says something about you. Your king says something about your value. Your king says something about your future. So having a good king is more important than anything else. Well, the good news is that our Jesus is king of kings. Amen. And he's a good king. And so we're going to see all these amazing lessons about what we're looking forward to, what we have in Jesus. We're looking forward when Jesus returns a second time as we go through 1 and 2 Chronicles. See, the throne represents that God has this eternal promise to us to bring his good rule over us. Now, if, you, if you're not a Christian yet, or if you're just kind of examining these things, you might think the whole idea of someone ruling over, you, ruling over you is never a good thing. But it really is. I'll tell you what, turning 50 this year, looking back at my life, and thinking about how much self-rule there's been, everywhere there's been self-rule, there's been disaster. 
Every time I, I say, I'm going to control my own life, I'm going to do what I want to do, which is about once a day at least, every time that happens, <laughs> disaster comes. But when I submit to the, the rule of my good King Jesus, man, life is what it's meant to be, and there's hope for the future. The throne, the fact that we have a God who sits on the throne, is so important for us to get our head around. Now, I want you to, to turn with me to uh, chapter 4, verse 9. So this is the, the first thing we're going to see in, in, uh, in this series is that God's plan centers on this good king. But here's the second thing that we see in this genealogy. is simply this, a God that answers prayer. Now we all would go, oh yeah, of course I know that. But does your prayer life reflect that? And I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. Every time someone brings up prayer, we all go, oh, I don't pray enough. That's not the point. The point is, do we really believe in this creator of the universe that wants to hear from us as individuals and corporately and answer our prayers. Because this is one of the main themes that goes throughout 1 and 2 Chronicles. Right? So look at verse 9 of chapter 4. Interesting, in the middle of all these names that are just kind of mentioned as names, we have this character, Jabez, who we've not heard of anywhere else. Here's what it says about Jabez. Now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, because, saying, because I bore him in pain. Now here's, this is really interesting. It's interesting because you can imagine, in that culture, a name means a lot. A, a name speaks of your character and or your destiny. So to be named something means something. So I can imagine this mother saying, this is my daughter Hope, and my son, Misery. <laughs> And how that poor kid must have felt. You talk about a, a recipe for bitterness, Jabez had it. He should have maybe been bitter. But in fact, he wasn't bitter by this. He was humbled by this. What do we see in verse 10? It says, And Jabez called on the name, or called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me and that you would keep me from evil, that I might not cause pain. Now, there's a whole book that was written about this about two decades ago that I, I think it had some good bits in it, but to be honest, it was really a bit of a formula. Pray like Jabez and all this great stuff's going to happen for you. It doesn't work that way. But I'll tell you how it does work. I'll tell you how it does work. What we see in Jabez, in fact, there's, there's um, some of the sort of extra-biblical Jewish traditions talk about Jabez as when he's, when he's asking for his, um, his territory to be enlarged. And he's talking about the influence of the covenant God. We might say in New Testament terms, the influence of the gospel. So that when he's saying, God, enlarge my territory, he's saying, enlarge my influence for the good news about who you are, God. Make, make me more influence so I can tell people who you are, because otherwise I'm just going to be someone who causes pain. This is somebody who doesn't have a low, again, a low self-esteem. This is somebody who has a proper esteem. They know who they are before God, and they know who their God is. And so he calls out as an individual and says, God, I want to receive more than just material prosperity. I, I, I see what the need is, and I, I pray you'd use me to meet that need. I don't want to cause pain. I want to be someone who prospers and blesses others. Amen. And what does it say in verse 10? So God granted him what he requested. Isn't that awesome? God did what Jabez asked. Why? Because he asked. He asked. 
We serve a God who answers prayer. Listen, I don't know what your background is. I don't know what circumstances you're in now or what circumstances you grew up in. But here's what I know for sure. That God sovereignly, our God is in control of all things. And our God sovereignly allowed those circumstances for this reason. So that you could call on him and know him. You know why I know that? Because the scripture says clearly. Listen to this. Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27 says, For from one man God made all the nations. There's, we, we talk about races. There's, there's cultures, but there's really only one race, the human race. Amen. That they should inhabit the whole earth, he says, and he marked out their appointed times in history and their boundaries of their lands, and God did this so that they might seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. Do you realize that's why you're in the, the place you are in now? If it's a good place, God has you there, so you might seek him. If it's a bad place, God has you there, so you might seek him. He's a God who hears and answers prayers. God cares. We're going to see this throughout all of Chronicles. In fact, it's not just about individuals either, because again, we want to think a bit more corporately. We need to, to think more corporately. And with that in mind, I want you to turn to chapter 5. Because God doesn't just answer prayers from individuals. He answers, he answers prayers from groups, even groups that have been historically failures. Chapter 5, verse 1. It says, now the sons of Reuben, now Reuben comes back, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, the, the author tells us, but because he defiled his father's bed, you can read about that story in Genesis, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to birthright. Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers. And from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph's, and the sons of Reuben, the firstborn were, uh, of Israel, were Hanuk, uh, Pelu, Ezron, and Carmi. Now we read that and we go, okay, we don't know, that's something we already kind of knew, didn't we? That Judah's more important than Reuben in this context. But go down to verse 18 of chapter 5. Because we read this about Reuben and we think, okay, God just chucked him aside because he's an idiot. He messed up. But this is not what happens. It says in verse 18, the sons of Reuben, as well as with the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they had 44,760 valiant men, men able to bear shield and sword, to shoot with the bow and skillful in war, who went to war. We're going to see this whole theme of war goes throughout the thing as well, but that's a side point. So they made war with the Hagrites, uh, Jeter, Nafish, and Nodab. And here's the important verse, verse 20. And they were helped against them, and the Hagrites were delivered into their hands. Why? And all who were with them, why? For they cried out to God in the battle, and he heeded their prayer, because they put their trust in him. I love this. And I love this because we'll see in Chronicles 1 and 2 Chronicles where God answers prayer, where God's people have victory over their enemies. Great lessons for that. But I love the fact that here it is, the Reubenites. People who were, who were unfaithful, who were kind of like, you should be the firstborn, or you're the firstborn, you should be the one of prominence, but you're not. And yet, when they cry out and say, God, help us, God helps them. God helps them. Eventually, we're going to get to chapter 7 of 2 Chronicles, and, and this is a verse that many of you guys know, where God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, and heal their 
land. Isn't it amazing that often the thing that keeps us from really seeking our God is our own shame? And yet the God that we serve, the God of Scripture, is a God that has already dealt with our shame through Jesus. That he's made a covenant with us, a promise based on love to deal with our sins so that we can come to him. Because God wants to teach us to be praying people. Tomorrow evening at um, Lisa Rose's house is our monthly prayer for revival. I feel bad announcing this since I can't be there, but if you can be there, be there. Every, every Sunday morning at 10.15, we have a prayer time, praying for service specifically. Every Friday morning at, from 7 to 8.30, we have a come and go prayer meeting at the church office. Most of the house groups, when they start again, will take time in their house group to pray for one another. Why do we do this? Well, it's what we're supposed to do. We're Christians, so we pray. No. We do it because God answers prayer. Because somebody's actually listening to us. Folks, the church moves forward on its knees. And my prayer is that as we go through one and two chronicles, that we see that God is a God who answers prayer. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter uh, 4, verse 16. Again, you probably many of you know this. This exhortation, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our God sits on a throne of grace. There's no reluctance in the God of Scripture to hear our prayers. Wait, John, you say. I know there's a Scripture somewhere that says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear us. That's not God's resistance to your prayers. That's God saying, let's deal with this thing. Let's pray about this thing specifically. Let's pray about the sin that you refuse to let go of. Let's pray about that. Because God longs for us to come to him. That's the second thing we're going to see through one and two chronicles. He has a God who answers prayers. Here's the third thing. We're going to see God who directs his own worship. God directs his own worship. Look at verse, or chapter 6 in verse 48. Chapter 6, verse 48. Now, if you, if you read all of chapter 6, you're going to see it starts with the family of Levi. The Levites, of course, were the priestly line. But he also gets into, in verse 31 and, and following, he names those musicians of the house. He talks about sung worship and played worship. It's, again, one of the, the, the emphasis in um, 1 and 2 Chronicles is this idea of, of sung worship and the priority of that. It's a good thing. It's a biblical thing that we worship. But for, for today, what we want to focus on is the idea that, uh, of what he makes clear here in the genealogy when he makes this comment in verse 48. He says, And their brethren, the Levites, were appointed to every kind of service of the house of God. And what's really key is that word appointed. If you read the Old Testament law, you read the book of Leviticus. Again, probably not as dry reading as this genealogy. But what you see is God commanding exactly how he wants worship to be done. That God appoints uh, every aspect of worship. This is really important for us to get. Especially in our modern day. We're all about contemporary worship. We want the music not just to be something that we recognize, but something that's emotionally familiar. We want the lyrics to be true. This is all good stuff. But here's one of the problems with the way we look at worship. Especially sung worship. 
As we see now sun worship and we measure it by, what am I getting out of this? Am I feeling more connected to God? And what we should be saying, what the scripture would teach us to say is, Lord, are you pleased with this worship? Are we worshiping the way you want us to? Are you happy with our worship? And this goes, of course, applies to more than just sun worship, doesn't it? It's our whole life. See, God appoints our worship. One of the things that happens when you serve on a team here at Servants Church, especially if you're maybe doing children's ministry, you may not get to sit in and, and sing worship. And I, that's I, it's one of the kind of complaints that people have, have given us, you know, and usually with a pretty good attitude, like, oh, I really don't want to do uh, another Sunday this month because I know that you need someone to fill in, but I just don't want to miss worship again. And that's another problem we have with worship. Oh, worship is when we sing. No, worship is when we do anything declaring God's worth. And this is what we, we're, we're, we're praying that, that we catch the vision for, that everything that God calls us to do in life, being parents, being spouses, working normal jobs, serving at church, all of that is meant to be an expression of worship. And to be worship is not just to say, oh, I feel like I'm declaring God's worth, but that we say to God, Lord, are you pleased? Am I doing this in a way that you've appointed? That's worship. This is one of the themes we're going to see throughout 1 Chronicles. In fact, I think it's really important for us to recognize that God doesn't dictate his worship because he's fickle or picky. God commands worship, not because it benefits him. He created angels. They, just, they sing praises all day long. God commands worship, not just because he's worthy, but because it does us good to worship him. Do you realize every command that God gives us is for our benefit? There's no act of obedience that you ever engage in. There's no act of worship you ever engage in that adds to God. I'm not saying he's not pleased by it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he's neutral about it, but it doesn't add anything to him. He doesn't gain anything. But we gain everything. And, and Chronicles reminds us of this. That God lays out how worship is to be done. And some of the, some of the stories involved are quite sobering about what happens when we decide we're going to worship on our own terms. No, God calls us he appoints worship. He directs his own worship. In fact, look at verse 49. It says, he, he says, look, Levites are for every kind of service, but specifically Aaron and his sons. That, those part of the, the, the Levites. Specifically Aaron and his sons, they were to offer the sacrifices on the altar of burnt offering and on the altar of incense and to make the work of the most holy place. Notice, and to make atonement for Israel according to all that Moses, the servant of God, had commanded. Do you recognize that part of the reason God dictates his own worship is for us to recognize how we can be in a right relationship with him so he can receive our worship? Well, how is atonement made? Now, this is important because um, the scripture is all about that our, both our uh, expression to God is worship. Our, our response to, to the gospel is to be worship. We'll read that in a second. But also that, that the gospel itself or the, uh, the atonement that God made through Jesus, that should be our, 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 our greatest motivator for worship. Listen to this. This is what Paul writes 
uh, in the book of Romans. This is the Romans chapter 12, the first five verses. And here Paul is, is saying, okay, now that I've explained to you the gospel in 11 chapters, here's how you should respond to the gospel. He says, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation because it's easy to understand. He says, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies, that's your whole lives to God. Because of all that he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. Doesn't that sound like what we read here? The kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him, he says. He says, don't copy the behavior and customs of, the, of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And he says, don't think that you're better than you really are. But he says, be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. Now this is important because when we're talking about worship, and we're going to see this a lot as we go through 1 and 2 Chronicles, we're talking about the service that we give unto the Lord. We say, God, you're worthy of. And that's going to look different from us, for each, for each of us because we have different gifts and abilities. But also it's going to look different because it needs to be out of obedience. One of the things that we try to teach our interns is one of the, the, part of the, the art of ministry, and there's an art to ministry, is learning to say no to good things. There's so many good things that we could be doing. Tons of good things. Uh, a few years ago, a couple years back, uh, I had to turn down nine speaking engagements because I just, there's no way I had time to do that and do what God called me to do here. And I'll be honest, I love the good deal speaking engagements because I get to just do my best stuff. So you guys get everything, but they get to get the best stuff. And everyone thinks you're wonderful when you just give the best stuff. And they treat you nice, and they don't expect you to make coffees or do anything else. You just have to speak. It's a really nice gig. And so, so I actually like doing that, to be honest. But that's not what God calls me to do. And what God calls me to do is, say, is to do as unto him, to do it because he's worthy of that obedience. He's worthy of that service, whether the people like it or not. This is kind of what Paul's giving, uh, getting to. He's saying, look, do you believe the gospel's enough, that God's worthy just because of what he's done for you in Christ? Is that enough to say, Lord, here's my whole life? Because the answer to that question is yes. But also, we need to remember what Christ has done, which is greater than what we saw in the Old Testament. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, here's what it says. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands, which is not part of this created world. And with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Does that not make him worthy of worship? Because as we look in how God dictates worship, that's what he wants us, that's what he wants our motive to be. So often when we're worshiping God, serving in church, singing to God, doing whatever, we're doing so because our motive is, I need something more from God. So if I serve really hard, maybe I'll put him in enough debt or earn enough compassion, he'll do something for me. That's never the worship that God directs. 
God directs a worship that says, God, I already have every blessing in Christ, and I just want to say thank you and show you the love that you're worthy of by loving and serving your people. We're going to learn that as we go through 1 and 2 Chronicles. Now, this whole talk about worship and, and prayer, this, all this kind of leads us back to the second point or the second theme for Chronicles. It's the throne and it's the temple. So, so we don't worship in a temple anymore. Why not? We are the temple. <laughs> the Bible teaches that, that we're the temple of God. He dwells among us. And, but also there's some, this great promise that we just read, really, in Hebrews chapter 9, that the temple represents for us God's eternal presence made, a, made available forever through Christ. That's the temple. And so we're going to see this illustrated throughout 1 and 2 Chronicles. Now, we're almost done. I want you to turn to all the way down to chapter 9. Chapter 9. Now, if you were to read chapter 7 and 8, what you'd see within those genealogies is a specific emphasis on the warrior tribes. You'll see like uh, this phrase, men of valor, or men armed for battle, used nine times within those two chapters. So they're re-emphasizing the warrior tribes. And that's important, because he wants, the, 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 the author wants us to see, these guys were ready to, to, to fight. You know, to this day, Israel has a reputation of having the fiercest army in the world per size. They're tough people. And and so these guys were were real warriors. But look at what it says in chapter 9, verse 1. And so all Israel was recorded by genealogy. And indeed, they were inscribed in the books of the kings of Israel. But Judah was carried away captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. Mm. These guys were tough. But toughness, courage... Effort, human ability means nothing if we're not going to be faithful to our God. You see, here's the, the reality is they, they were tough people. They were willing to fight with, for what God said was theirs, but they weren't willing to obey the God that gave it to them. And God judged them for their unfaithfulness. He chastened them, we might say, for their unfaithfulness. See, see, here's what we need to understand. We need to understand what the psalmist said. The psalmist says in Psalm 27, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Chariots and horses. You, you could, if, if this was written, if the Psalm 20 was written in, in the 21st century, it'd say some trust, uh, trust in tanks and some tr- trust in fighter jets, but we'll, uh, we'll trust in the Lord. Now, now the psalmists are not saying it's wrong for a country to have an army. The point is, it's foolish for believers to put their faith in that. Our faith is in the God who delivers us. In Him, here's the fourth thing, the thing we see throughout, in the God who restores us. Because what does it say in verse 2? In verse 2 it says, In the first inhabitants who dwelt in their possession in their cities were the Israelites, the priests, the Levites, and the Nethanim. Now, you might recognize that if you went with us through Nehemiah, because that's the same verse, basically verbatim in Nehemiah, that says these are the first people to go back to Jerusalem. Because the rest of chapter 9, with the exception of the section about Saul, which we'll get into next week, is basically the, the genealogy of those that were in Jerusalem when the author wrote this, or those that had been there first. Why is this important? It's important because God had promised to bring them back to the land. This is what God had promised. 
even before they actually went into captivity, when most of Israel was thinking, whatever, they weren't listening to the prophets of God, they listened to the false prophets that said, everything's going to be wonderful, but they weren't listening to the prophets that were saying, no, 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 you guys are, are being unfaithful to God, you're going to go into captivity, Babylon's going to come and take you into captivity, just like uh, Israel went into captivity, you, Judah, and Benjamin, you're going to go into captivity, they were ignoring that. And God was saying warning after warning after warning. And even wanting to give them a comfort. Look, this is going to happen, but there's going to be good that comes out of it. And that's what Jeremiah chapter 29 is about. Where Jeremiah the prophet has said to them, here's what's going to happen. You're going to captivity. He says, but God has a good plan. And you guys probably have this somewhere in your house if you're a believer on a plaque or a card somewhere. Jeremiah 29 11, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And he gave that promise when they were, before they went into captivity. To say, listen, this is going to be a tough season, 70 years. But the children of yours that come back and go into Jerusalem, they're going to need to know this is the truth. But the rest of the verses say this. This is verses 12 and 13. Says, when you come back, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel like servant church is the best it can be? No, come on, absolutely not. Do you feel like you are the best you can be? Can we grow in our faithfulness to God? Do we want to know God better this year than we did last? Can we have a hope that God wants to use us to actually reach the lost? That we're not just in the city so that we can kind of gather together and feel sorry for ourselves, but to be equipped to do the mission that God has for us. Do we believe this? Do we believe that God wants us to have an impact? If you're struggling with that, this is what this series is about. That as we recognize who's on the throne... And we recognize who's in the temple. That's when we have hope for the future. That's when we have the motivation to keep slugging away, to keep chipping away at what God's called us to do. Amen? Amen. Trust you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that there's so much to see even in these names. Thank you, Lord, that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, saints that you've been faithful to, that you've kept your promises to. That we've been grafted into Israel even. Thank you Lord that we're yours. And Lord I pray for anyone here today that doesn't know you yet. That maybe thought man genealogies what's this got to do with anything. I pray Lord that they would. They'd be willing to ask the questions that need to be asked. And they, Lord they would know that there's a God. The God who has made the promises to these people. The God recorded about in the scripture. That that God is alive. And that you Father would speak to them. And show them that you truly are who you said you are. And Lord, I pray that as we go through this, these, these chronicles, that Lord, you would challenge us and you would change us. That you would teach us to be people of prayer. That you would teach us, Lord, to be people who make much of Jesus our good king. That we would glory in being under his rule. Lord, that we would be those who, who long to see the restoration that you want to bring. Lord, that we would be those that say, Lord, you tell us how you want to be worshipped because we just want to please you. Do that work in us, we pray. And we commit this day to you. In Jesus' name, amen.